Well, good morning. Man, that was exciting worship, and I hope that that um, stirred you a little bit. Uh, Tom, where are you, by the way? Where did, where did you escape to the back row there? Did you get a little bit more energy? I think it'll go okay for you. <clears throat> it's all right, man. If you want to get excited, don't get excited about the Vikings. Get excited about the Lord. I didn't say that, It's okay to get excited about the Vikings. Just get more excited about God. Okay. I got that. And now let's close in prayer. No, just kidding. Just kidding. I'm just kidding. We are in the book of Revelation chapter 2. I hope that uh, over the last few weeks that God has been faithful in communicating to you because I think when we come to the Word, the Lord has something to say to us. These are letters to the churches. It includes Gateway Church. There's something here for us each week, and I hope and indeed pray that you would come with anticipation that the voice of the Lord is active in our times together, and He's calling us to Himself in great ways. We need the messages here in the book of Revelation. I think they are very timely and relevant for us, so let's take a moment to pray, and then we will look at Revelation chapter 2. Father, we are, again, amazed at who you are. You are indeed awesome. So as our voices have now lifted to you praise and adoration, now let us be still and know that you're God, as you would speak to us through your word. Allow us to listen well. So we consecrate this time to you and your purposes. In your name, amen. Excuse me. When you have the privilege of working with college students on a regular basis, as I do, you get to intersect with college students at a time when marriage is on their mind. And so I've had the wonderful opportunity to do a lot of premarital counseling and uh, have a wedding a little less than a month away from now with a young couple, but probably no couple was as adorable as Kurt and Kelly. They were a promising young couple, popular among their peers, bright future. In fact, Kurt was the only person I've ever met who honestly wanted to be the President of the United States. He was pretty serious about it. He was a political science major and to this day works as a professional uh, in the world of politics. My wife and I had the privilege of walking alongside of this young couple and uh, we went out to eat with them one time and sat with them and enjoyed our time. And we got back from our time of eating out with them and my wife said, did you observe the way Kelly kind of looked at him and Some of the things she said was kind of critical. And so we started to pay attention to that. As the wedding date approached, we got increasingly uncomfortable with the dynamic within this relationship. And so I still remember one night I had um, contacted Kurt. I said, are you going to be around? He said, yeah. I said, can I come over and visit with you? I went over to his dorm room 
And I can still you know, envision this scene of him sitting on one bed and I was sitting on the other bed. And I tried my best to communicate to him my deep, deep concern for their relationship. And the way that she responded to him just made me uncomfortable. Here was a, brew, a groom that was being treated poorly and almost ignored at times by the bride. Well, they got married, and I was there when they got married. I didn't do the ceremony, but I was there. And I moved away shortly after that. <clears throat> but what I discovered is that less than a year after their wedding, his bride left him for another man. He was confronted and chose not to listen. What a dangerous and illegitimate play it is for a bride to choose to hold the hands of two grooms simultaneously. You see, the groom has what I would consider to be a legitimate authority to call the bride to fidelity. This is not cruelty, it's not harassment. It is unadulterated love that says, you belong to me and I belong to you. And I'm asking for your allegiance and loyalty and love without any substitutes, without holding the hand of any other person. It is a fair demand of every loving groom to expect from the bride. Today's message must be read in light of that scenario. The word Pergamum, which is the church we're going to look at, the word Pergamum itself means married. So read it in light of that. Let's introduce you to the city of Pergamum. If you see the map, we've talked about the fact that John is on Patmos. The island writes the letter a mailman is handed the letter. Mailman travels to Ephesus, reads the letter of the book of Revelation, travels to Smyrna, which we looked at last week, and then today travels to Pergamum. See Pergamum there on the north side of Asia Minor, about 15 miles from shore, about 40 miles from Smyrna. Pergamum had a special allegiance to Rome. Because the last leader of that entire region, in his will, willed the city of Pergamum to Rome. And because of that, Pergamum is the capital city of that whole region. It's the provincial capital of the region. So I put it this way, Ephesus is like the New York City of the day in that region Pergamum is the Washington, D.C. It was a great, powerful city. She built a temple to Rome, to Augustus Caesar, in 29 B.C. It was the center for the imperial cult of the day. We talked last time about burning incense at the altar. All of that would have taken place at Pergamum as she declared her loyalty to Rome. 
Let me show you the city, at least what remains of the city. Go to the next slide. The city was built on an acropolis, a hill, about a thousand feet above the uh, meadows below. And so what you're looking at is what remains of the top of that hill. And if you look at the hill, you see right cut right across the middle of the hill, you can see the roadway that would take travelers up to the top of the hill. We'll show you what's at the top of the hill a little, long, a little bit, but what I want, is, want you to see is at the bottom of the hill. So, yeah, next slide. Go ahead. Next one. There you go. The shrine of Oscalipios, the patron god of Pergamum, was Oscalipios, which is uh, a god of healing, a god that was represented in the serpent, as we'll see in a moment. So what you're seeing now is the shrine. It's at the lower part of the city, not up on the hill. And in this shrine... The temple uh, gods and goddesses would release non-venomous snakes across the temple floor. And those who wanted healing would walk through the shrine. And if the snake would touch them, it was believed that you would be healed. Go to the next slide. Right there you go. You see the serpents there on the pillar that remains. You wonder why the emblem for medicine contains serpents. Now you know. There it is. This is at the lower level. You can see in this image even a little small theater they had there in the lower level where people could sit and watch with the things that were going on. But we don't want to stay at the bottom. We want to get it to the top of the hill. Next slide. <coughs> Excuse me. The sacred way. This was the pathway that would take you from the lower part of the city to the upper part of the city. It was referred to the sacred way partly because of all the different cults and religions that made their home here in the capital city. Next slide. Here's another look up to the top of the hill. Fascinating uh, to discover as you look at this particular image, you can see a theater. We're going to show you a close-up of it in a moment. But do you see the theater there carved out on the side of the hill? The aqueducts that are about halfway down from the, the hill. You can see some, there's some buildings at the top. We'll show you all that in a second. Next slide. Here's an aerial view of what we're seeing from the, from the, on the top of the hill. Yeah, you can see the theater. You can see some white buildings kind of off to the left, some pillars. That's the library. It was the second largest library in the world, next only to Rome. Had about 200,000 uh, articles there in the library for people to uh, digest. So very, very popular and a beautiful, as you see, very ornate uh, building there at the top of the Acropolis. Next slide. Here's our theater. That's kind of steep, isn't it? Next slide. You can see it again. Yeah, that's, uh, man, that's like the top of the stadium or something. You got a nosebleeds. Every seat is a nosebleed in that theater. Okay, next slide. The altar to Zeus. So let's go back. Let's go back one slide. Can we go back just one slide for us? Do you see the little trees in the top middle of that slide? That's leading us to the altar of Zeus, which is the next slide, please. One of the things that Pergamum is famous for was the altar to Zeus, which extended kind of to the, the uh, tip of the Acropolis. And there at the altar of Zeus was a continual 24-7 burning of an animal sacrifice and so that you could see the smoke from the altar of Zeus 
rising uh, 24-7, and you could smell it throughout the whole region. So as you approach Pergamum, the most identifiable piece of this city is the aroma of the altar of Zeus and this image of a smoke rising from the city top. Now, the only thing I haven't told you about the city yet that I've alluded to that's significant for us today is this. Pergamum, because of her loyalty to Rome, was given something that no other city will see in the book of Revelation gets. Pergamum was offered the right of the sword from Rome. The right of the sword meant that Pergamum had the privilege of executing people without consulting Rome. Pergamum, as the capital city, could arrest and try people and execute them all on her own. And so it was known that Pergamum carried the right of the sword. That's what that was referred to if you were granted that privilege. Now, that's the background of the city. Now let's go to the text. Revelation chapter 2, beginning at verse 12, we have what I have been referring to as the relevant identification of Christ. Verse 12. The angel of the church in Pergamum, let me say that differently, to the angel of the church to the married ones. Remember, Pergamum means married. To the married ones, right. These are the words of him who has the sharp, double-edged sword. You see the relevancy? Jesus, it is said in Revelation chapter 19, verse 21, that Jesus has a sword coming out of his mouth. The sword is the symbol of authority and power and life and death. And all of that resides in the single place of Rome. Or does it? Here the relevant identification is Jesus coming alongside the married ones and saying to them, Just so you know, I have the greatest authority in the universe. I am the one who chooses life and death. Not Rome. It's fascinating the way this is worded. Literally, it's worded this way. This is the letter, the words of him who has the sword, the double-edged one, the sharp one. It's as if verbally the author wants us to run our fingers down the length of the sword. To know how sharp it is, how faithful it is to execute judgment. This is Jesus coming alongside his people and saying, Please understand, I have the ability to pierce with my words. The words themselves have judgment authority in them. Pay attention. Sit up. Eyes forward. Your commander is speaking. Oh, and this may sting for a moment. 
but it will bring healing in the end. This identification is both a comfort and a threat. And what is the commendation of this relevant one, this one who has the sword, this double-edged sword, the right of judgment? What's his judgment? Verse 13. I know where you live. That's an interesting line. Let's stop there for a moment. In all seven of the other lines, when there is a commendation, it starts this way. I know your deeds. Here, here, Jesus identifies himself as the one with the sword to execute judgment and says, by the way, I know where you live. And how, what does he know? He says, I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Ooh, that's dark, isn't it? I know where you live. See, the, the trial that this group of believers has is not related to the deeds. The trial is related to where they live. It's their geography. And the issue is severe. I know your address, and your address is exactly where Satan has his throne. Well, what does that mean? It can mean several things. It could mean a reference to the fact that the Acropolis looked like a throne from a distance. So I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. That could be an option. It could be a a reference to the fact that the altar of Zeus is there. And the altar of Zeus is out at the tip of the Acropolis. And as you look at it, it looks like a throne. And maybe it's a reference to the altar of Zeus. Can I suggest that I think it's a reference to the fact that this is the capital city, the headquarters for the imperial cult. Throughout the book of Revelation, Rome is portrayed as animated by Satan. Graphic images of the beast and the harlot and so forth. You live where Rome has authority, and Rome is our problem here, animated by Satan himself. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne, where Satan has his will and his way activated. I know that you live in a place where you experience the manifestation of all things anti-God. And I know that I have a sharp double-edged sword and that my rule is final, but, but you live in a time and a place where it doesn't seem like my rule is final. Do you see that? You live in a time where it doesn't seem like my rule is final. Pergamum was a thoroughly synergistic city when it came to religious affairs. Many thought that once Christianity, excuse me, Christianity arrived at Pergamum, Christianity would just be assumed into the culture. Christians proved more difficult. They were hard to handle. Christians wouldn't pinch incense at the altar of Caesar. And conflict arose. What's interesting is that when Jesus says, I know where you live, he never tells them to move. I remember a lady in the church where I was pastoring one time came to me. She was having conflict with her parents. 
She was married. She had several children. And she came to my office and she said, I'm, I'm just curious, do you think it would be okay for me and my family to move to Nashville to get away from my parents? I suggested that she try the moon. I know where you live, believers in Elk River, and it's not an easy place. There is the manifestation of evil in your midst, and it doesn't seem like Jesus' words are final. So I just encourage you, move somewhere else. Get away from it. You know, it's it's interesting. Jesus never says, why don't you pack up and move to Colorado Springs? or Wheaton, or Grand Rapids, or whatever Christian city you want to move to. Save yourself the headache, detach, withdraw, escape. I hear Christians say that from time to time. But let me say it clearly. Just from this text alone, this is where we belong. He has left us here to be ambassadors to our Pergamum. And we're not going to escape it by moving to Nashville or any other city. And we cannot go to the moon. By God's providence, He has placed us here. He wants us to stay faithful in our city Always remembering that the lasting sword is wielded by Jesus, not Rome. So I know where you live, it's a tough place to live there. And yet, verse 13, here's the the commendation continues, yet you remain true to my name. Even when it's hard, you did not renounce your faith in me. Even the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city, the right of the sword was applied to one of your very own. And yet, even in those days, you remain faithful to me. Wow. We can commend that, can't we? And notice the line at the end of verse 13. Where Satan lives, he returns to that thought. (coughs) Pardon me. So here comes the confrontation in verse 14. Let me see if I'm going to... Here's my transitional sentence for us to think about. Pergamum, you did a good job. You've protected the front door. But you've let the enemy in the back door. Let's look at this. Verse 14, nevertheless, (coughs) I have a few things against you. You have people there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin by eating food, sacrifice to idols, and by committing sexual immorality. What is going on in that passage? 
I'm glad you asked. I'm going to answer. You do understand that Balaam lived about 1,400 years before this text. And we are astute enough Bible scholars in this room to know that when he references the teaching of Balaam, he is not referencing the actual prophet of Balaam, 1,400 years old, sitting in their midst. What is going on is actually a reference to a story. To understand this text, you have to know the story of Balaam and Balak. Let me tell you the story. You can find it in Numbers chapter 22 through 24. Balak is the king of Moab. He despises the people of God, the Hebrew people as they're traveling around. He fears that his people might be wiped out by the Hebrews. And so he hires a prophet, Balaam, to go and curse the people of God. And every time Balaam goes to do that, it comes out as blessing. Four times, I'm going to curse the people, it comes out blessing. So, Balak's strategy to defeat the people of God by cursing them fails. Balaam, though, still wanting the money bag from Balak, still wanting to be paid from the treasury, comes up with a plan. Now, if you're reading Numbers 24, and you finish the Balaam story, then Balaam got up and returned home, and Balak went his own way, and you go, that's the end of it. Well, that's strange. Well, I, what happened? Well, verse 20, chapter 25 of Numbers Chapter 25 of Numbers says it this way, While Israel was staying in Shittim, the men began to indulge in sexual immorality with Moabite women. Wait a minute. Balak is the king of what? Moab. Who are these women? Where are they from? Moab. Oh, that's odd. I thought Moab was trying to produce, uh, pronounce a curse on the people. Now, they're sending in their women to entice the men. You follow that? Goes on and says, The Moabite women who invited them to the sacrifices to their gods, the people ate and bowed down before their gods, so Israel joined in worshiping the Baal of Peor, and the Lord's anger burned against them. What? If you read a little later in the book of Numbers, chapter 31, verse 16, it tells us this. It tells us that the women of Moab followed the advice of Balaam. And were the means of turning the Israelites away from the Lord. Okay, so now get to, here's the story, right? We're going we're gonna to go curse the Hebrew people. Try it once, twice, three, four times. Doesn't work. Balaam, the hired prophet, prophet for money, goes, that didn't work. I got another idea. Balak, if you want to conquer the people, your military is not going to work. So I've got a plan. 
Send in your Delilahs. Send in the women to entice them to serve other gods and idols and to commit sexual fornications with your men. And you will defeat them. Let me say it differently for us. You protected the front door, but you let the enemy in the back door. I put it this way in my notes. While persecution has slayed her thousands, seduction has slayed her ten thousands. See, the issue in Pergamum is that when the enemy, when Rome showed her viper fangs and was going to persecute the church and martyr her faithful, you and Pergamum stood up to her and you were faithful through that frontal attack. But when the same enemy comes around the back door and seduces you with improper teaching, you tolerate it. See, you've allowed the teaching of Balaam. See that? What's the teaching of Balaam? The teaching of Balaam is this. Let's be friendly with Rome. The teaching is, it doesn't really matter what you do. you got to go along to get along. See, when the same enemy comes at his frontal attacks, we drive him back. But here is a war without swords, a war, a war without ultimatums. It's a silent war when we let the bad teaching grow in the church. So here is the very believable lie that ensnares us. Here's the lie. A partial, even insincere participation with ungodly teaching or behavior will not affect my loyalty with Christ. Let me say it again. A partial, even insincere participation with ungodly teaching or ungodly behavior, it will not affect my relationship with Christ. That is a lie. See, we're not conquered by the roaring lion, but by the deceptive serpent. We can simultaneously hold the hands of two grooms. God on this hand and an impartial, even insincere participation with the world and her teaching. It won't make a difference. Idols don't affect my relationship with God. See, if I were to bring a little wood trinket and set it up on the stage and say, would you come at the close of the service and bow down to the trinket, you'd go, there's no way I'm doing that. I would never fall for that. I am too loyal to Christ to bow to a wooden statue. But I will allow a steady diet of lewd TV 
That won't affect my relationship with Christ. I'll go ahead and date the unbeliever. That won't, that won't affect my relationship with Christ. I can have a sustained emotional attraction to a person of the opposite sex. Ah, it's, just, just a, it's just an office relationship. It won't matter. I can view some unnamed person half-dressed on the computer screen. It won't affect my relationship with Christ. It's not hurting anyone. What difference does it make? This is what people do today. I'll just go along to get along. And besides, I'll stay active in the church. I'll still give my money. I'll still go through church membership. I'll study the Bible. But I can live my life on the margins of life with a holy God, and I'll be okay with it. To which I remind us that the one speaking to us through the text is the one who has the sharp, double-edged sword coming out of his mouth. You say, how does this happen? Let me tell you how it happens quickly. It goes back to the church in Ephesus. Our first week, several weeks ago, it happens like this. It happens when we work hard to maintain our doctrine and we're pressing hard into the things of God and our first love cools. Remember that? You have forgotten your first love. Your love for Jesus, you were doing the the what constantly, but we're forgetting the why. We're doing the what without any affection for Christ. And when that happens and the love for God cools, here's what happens. The warmth of other loves, not true, appear enticing. We get charmed by a secondary love. See, when my, when my relationship with Christ isn't strong, then, then I can flow into loving other things, secondary things. And how many times, honestly, been around in ministry long enough to see it, husband and wife, relationship's not going so great, One of those persons in the married relationship has a relationship with someone at work. This person at work really cares for me in ways that my spouse doesn't. How does that happen? When our relationship, our first and primary relationship cools, the warmth of other loves appeal to us. Let's look at the text. Verse 16, now that you know a little bit about the teaching of Balaam, it tells us a little bit about this next group. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. We don't know much about the Nicolaitans. They must be similar to the teaching of Balaam, the way he uses the word likewise and also. Nicolaitans is a small, short-lived band of people who were calling Christians to abuse the grace of God by eating meat sacrificed to idols and doing sexual things that were inappropriate, just like the teaching of Balaam. You have people in your group that hold to that teaching and you've not done anything. When Rome shows her fangs, you, you resist, but 
when the, te- the teaching comes in the back door, you allow it. So here's the charge, verse 16, repent. Repent, therefore, otherwise I'll soon come to you and fight against you. Would you want to fight with the person who has a sword in his mouth? I don't think so. I'll come to you and I will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. And you will have to declare what team you're on. So why should I do it? Verse 17. Why should I listen to this message? He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes. Here's the motivating benediction. I will give you some of the hidden manna. I will also give him a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to him who receives it. Well, that's all really clear and obvious, so I don't need to talk about that. What in the world is he talking about? Well, we know something about the manna, don't we? In the Old Testament, manna was the bread-like food that God provided day after day for His people. Miraculous provision. What is He saying? Can I just interpret it this way? Stop eating foods sacrificed to idols. Stop eating food sacrificed to idols and start enjoying some heavenly provision. I will provide for you. I am sufficient for you. I can satisfy you in a way that idols never can. So if you will overcome, know that I will supply what you need. I will be your provision. There will be a messianic banquet at the end of the age that will entirely satisfy you. That's what I think he's referencing there. I will also give the overcomer a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to him who receives it. The white stone is probably a reference to the fact that a judge handing down a verdict in the first century would have two stones in front of the judge, a white stone referencing innocence and a black stone referencing guilty. And as the judgment would come, the judge would pick up one of those stones and drop it in an urn, signifying the judgment. Here, Jesus is saying to those who overcome, I will be the judge and I will declare that person innocent. The other way that the white stone was sometimes used as a ticket, as an entrance into a banquet, which may be significant referring to this context and the hidden manna. So if you overcome, I will give you a ticket to the final banquet. But this ticket has something special written on it, a new name known only to him who receives it. Oh, I don't know, we don't have time for this, but imagine the scenario of someday Jesus giving you a white stone with a name written on it that matters to you and to Jesus only. Now, every couple who has been married for a while has little names that they use for one another. I would tell you the names I use with my wife, but then I'd have to kill you. No, that's not true. 
I'm going to give you my names. You've got your names. If you've been married a while, you've got your names, right? Just don't make fun of our names. Here's what it is for us. I signed every email that I write to my wife, signed the beast. Because she is definitely beauty. Sorry, guys. The other one that I picked up on, since we're handing out tips, guys, I sometimes sign it the frame because she's my Mona Lisa. Come on, that's great. You know what the problem is, gentlemen? Now that I've said that publicly, you can't use any of that. It won't matter at all at home. You know, say, hey, I asked, hey, beauty, how you doing? Say, you just got that from church. That guy, that guy at church said that. You can't use it. Come on, we all got pet names. Can you imagine the intimacy between the God of the universe and the overcomer. That he would have a special signature at the end of an email that's known only to you and to God. That is reason to overcome. Because we can be intimate with the one who has the double-edged sword coming from his mouth. Wow. Years ago, I was in a department store and standing next to one of those um, circular devices that has all the clothes on the rack, you know. And as I'm standing next to it, this little, it's a true story, little boy comes out from between the, the circle, comes out between the clothes and reaches up and grabs my hand. And I'm standing there, I'm looking down at him and he didn't realize, right? I'm not his dad. And you know how this happens because you've seen it before, right? The moment he realizes I'm not his dad, what does he do? <laughs> right back in. So for us today, can I suggest that there may be those here today that realize they're holding the wrong hand? That they have become a friend of the world And while the attack is not frontal, it's coming through the back door. While it's not persecution, it's seduction. And we have chosen maybe an impartial, an insincere, voluntary participation in something evil. We've embraced the thought that this evil thing that we do or believe, it won't impact our relationship with Christ. I can hold the hands of two grooms. And if that's the case today, can I suggest that we look up and make sure we're holding the hand of the right Savior? And if we're not, then let's let go of that hand and run the opposite direction. Let's pray. Father, how amazing it is to know how good you are and how you are a 
God that loves loyalty to you. And Jesus, how you long to be our groom and we the bride of Christ. How marvelous to consider that you love us enough to confront us. And to know that you love us enough that you want to be intimate with us. You want to have a pet name with each one of us. That level of nearness. But God, if we have held the hand of another groom, may we repent. May we repent. Let go of the hand and run quickly into your arms. Help us to not dabble in things that are contrary to you and your will and think that they will not impact us. Save us from that lie today. And may we march steadily in line in keeping with our commander-in-chief who has the double-edged sword in his mouth. Bless us now as your people as we walk faithfully this week with you. Use us in this world, we pray in your name. And amen and amen. Go in the peace of God. God bless you.